The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis with us. We are uh, in Genesis 6. Um, This is one of those sermons where things are about to get really weird, and um, we're going to try to understand this all together. So um, Genesis 6, uh, 1 to 8, I'm going to read this for us, and then we're going to unpack these verses together. You guys cool with that? All right. Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. Real quick, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, first book in the Bible, uh, the big number, chapter 6, just a few pages in from the front cover. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, um, as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. My de- his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of an of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds in the, of the heavens, so that I am, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we unpack these verses and seek to understand who you are in them, who you are for us, I pray that we would see in them not only your heart for justice, but your desire to give us mercy, that we would experience the goodness of our salvation in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I will uh, remind you as we start out that we have Q&A, that Q&A goes to my phone here. Um, it uh, is how I answer questions in case you are a little uh, concerned about raising questions or raising your hand at the end of the sermon. But if you have questions, they come straight here to my phone. Um, we are at one of those uh, incredibly weird <laughs> passages in the Bible. Um, who are the Nephilim? What are they? Who are these sons of God? What is going on here? What does it mean for God to regret things? Um, it's a very strange passage. Uh, it is one of those passages in the Bible that because we preach through books of the Bible, we just kind of end up coming along them and have to figure out what they mean together. Um, but I think it's one of those passages where um, the weirder uh, things get, and if we address them and engage with those weird things, they actually help us understand some of the more complicated parts of the Bible. Um, this passage, I think, um, while it is weird, and we're going to kind of talk about some of those weird interpretations of it, um, I think it helps us understand what exactly is happening, not only in the book of Genesis, but in God's heart for us as we ultimately see that in Jesus. So um, with that being said, I just want to jump right into the passage if you guys are cool with that. Um, The main point of what we're seeing here is that our only salvation from the grip of sin is to see the heart of God. I think that's what's happening here in this passage. Amidst all the weirdness, 
it is ultimately helping us see the complications of sin and where sin comes from and how evil perpetrates in the world and what that looks like and how things get complicated. But at the end of the day, we are gripped in sin and it is through seeing the heart of God and his mercy for us that we begin to experience the seeds of salvation that are in this passage for us. So that being said, we're going to look, we're just going to divide the passage right in half. And we're going to look at the first section of it. We're going to see evil's cancerous spread. So we're going to read verses 1 through 5, see evil's cancerous spread as we understand what exactly is going on in the book of Genesis here because things begin to get complicated. Uh, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took for them for their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, but he... For he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Here we go. The Nephilim. Who are these guys? The Nephilim were on the land, earth in those days, and afterwards, and the sons, they were the sons of God who came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his heart was evil, only, only evil continually. Okay. We're going to get into who are these Nephilim because, I mean, I'm sure you guys have dinner conversations about where the Nephilim and where they are in the news. And, man, did you know the Nephilim showed up and knocked on my door today and all that stuff. So, um, by the way, anybody have, like, Nephilim as, like, their last name because that's going to get really awkward. (laughs) Um, Okay. So there's basically three views on who the Nephilim are. um, And I want to just kind of jump right in this because there's just a lot of it. Just kind of to kind of think through some of the dynamics here. Basically, three views of who the Nephilim are. Um, They are, I think, identified with the sons of God. And there's basically three historic interpretations. The first one is these sons of God, who um, get referred to in this passage as Nephilim, um, are... uh, the, Seth, the, the line of Seth. So if you've been following through the book of Genesis here, we've had Genesis kind of leading us through, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And we saw in Genesis 5, that we, the chapter we just finished, how the line of Seth ha- is the righteous line. These are the good guys in the story. These are the people that God loves. They are the sons of God. And they intermarry then with this perspective is that the daughters of men are the daughters of the line of Cain. So Genesis 4 is the line of Cain. That's identified as the daughters of men. And so the problem here, what's being identified, is that you've got the good guys getting married to the bad guys, and we've all read Romeo and Juliet, and we know how that ends, right? Or West Side Story, right? That just came out. Again, like the fifth hundredth like time that movie's been made. <laughs> but... So the, pro- the, the problem with that perspective, the Sethite view, and this goes back early in church history, so it's a long-standing perspective, at least in my, my view. The problem with that is that um, nowhere else in the Bible is God's people generally called the sons of God, especially in the Old Testament. Nobody in, in, the, in the lines of genealogies are they categorically called, these are the sons of God, let alone the line of Cain being called the daughters of man. Um, so... There's no point where I see that that is a faithful reading of the passage, but it's a historically grounded view of the passage. Second perspective is that these sons of God, they're like superheroes, right? They're kings. They've got a lot of power. 
really what's, what's in view here is that they act like they are God. That's kind of the interpretation of this passage. These kings rise up and they have all of this power and they start taking uh, multiple wives. We've seen that in Genesis 4, where one of the, the line of Cain, he's the first to have two wives, obviously like a, an extension of evil. Here, this is basically saying like when it, when it says, um, and they took as their wives any as they chose, it's basically saying like, here are these kings and they want to have all of these kids and they're starting to denigrate and objectify women and make all of these like harems of women to the king. And it's really focusing on the sons of God, again, being a perspective of like kings or rulers. I think there's some validity to this, this kind of reading of it. Um, you do get through the rest of the Bible, the king being referred to as the son of God, like in Psalm 2, where the son is referred to as being God's son, or the king is being referred to as God's son. Um, I don't find that perspective overly convincing, um, and largely because, as you would expect the way this is going, I'm more persuaded of the sons of God, verse view 3, being um, angelic or spiritual powers. This is, again, where things kind of start to get a little strange. So I think when we look at this, if um, what's going on here is that the evil that is progressing in the world is not only human sin, but there is, I think, a spiritual level, a spiritual dynamic of sin being more present in the world, um, not only in the human realm, but in the spiritual realm. Throughout the rest of the Bible, often angels are referred to as sons of God. Um, we have that in uh, Psalm 82 or Psalm 59, where the sons of God, angelic powers are being judged by God in those places. Um, you can call them angels, just if that makes you more comfortable with that idea that they're angels and not, you know, spiritual powers or whatever. But I think what we have here is, in effect, the sons of God are spiritual beings who are taking on physical form in one way or the other, and then having, you know, children or getting married with women in the world. Um, this is consistent with the ancient Near East literature of the time. It is Tale of Babylon has, it, it calls them the Nephilim. They, call, they come down to Mount Hermon and they all agree we're going to get married to all these people because we want to make all these kingdoms in the world subject to us. And so in the Babylonian stories of the time, they would have had something very similar. In fact, the Babylonian story of Gilgamesh where the flood comes deals with one of these Nephilim from, that come down to the mountain and finds a way out to escape. So there's a similarity of the story here with the religious kind of religions of the time where these spiritual beings get married to people and they have kids and that's a real problem, which is similar to what we got going on here. I, I don't think it's that far-fetched to think that there's some sort of spiritual being having children in one way or the other with um, people. I mean, we believe in a religion where God takes on human flesh. I mean, that's, that's pretty strange. And so I don't think it's that far-fetched to say in one way or the other, these spiritual beings um, are able to get married and have children with all these people. Um, and I think the progression here goes from Genesis 1, where we had Satan, who was, I think we could say, is a son of God or an angel, influencing Adam and Eve towards sin and evil. We now have the progression from one to many, influencing people towards sin and wickedness. And so I think what we begin to have in this is, why does the flood happen? Why does God send the flood? It's not just like that he's like, oh, 
got to get rid of these people, you know, shake the eraser and then restart this whole thing over. There's something that provokes God. And I think what we have here is the, the chaos of evil and sin is extending beyond just merely being, man, people are really dirty and bad <laughs> to, wow, people and the spiritual world are getting really confused and it's getting really crazy and evil is increasing. Now, let me just kind of pick up on this Nephilim thing as, as spiritual beings and a bloodline of spiritual beings who are intermarried with humans. I just want to pick up on that thread. You can, I have more than I could say about Nephilim and, and all the stuff that I'm really not going to include in the sermon. So if you want to ask a question about it, you can send something to the Q&A number. But I want to just pick up on this thread because this is those weird things in the Bible where if we understand who the Nephilim are, we begin to address some of the more difficult questions that people have about the Old Testament. So one of the main questions, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure you've wrestled with this, or maybe your, your friends that aren't believers or whatever have wrestled with this question, why does God approve of genocide in the Old Testament? That's a main question. I mean, it's, it's a clear feature in the Old Testament where you have in, Gen in Deuteronomy 2 and 3 and then Deuteronomy 7, God saying, I want to send you into this land and I want you to devote these people to destruction. And then the story goes, men, women, and children are genocide, holy war, killed under the approval of God. So then how do you have this God who says, I want you to just devote these people to destruction, and yet you have Jesus who says, "He's I'm, I'm the same God, love your neighbor as yourself, love those who curse you, pray for your enemies. How do you put these two things together? Because it does not seem like it makes sense. I just want to pick up on this thread. Because I think if you take this perspective that the Nephilim are these intermarrying of spiritual beings, spiritual evil with humans creating this specifically demonic human hybrid bloodline through the Old Testament, you get some clarity on why those things happen. So I want to throw some verses up on the screen here. Can we throw um, this the Numbers 13? There we go. So... Numbers 13, we interact with the, the Nephilim again later in the, uh, in the New Old Testament. And there we saw, this is again where, um, this is where Joshua sends the people over, the 12 or so folks over into the promised land. They come back and they report. And what do they report? Hey, we saw the Nephilim. And this is, a, I just want to pick up on this phrase, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed, uh, uh, and so we seemed to them. So basically, what happens is picking up on this idea that these sons of God, the Nephilim, were basically giants. They were bigger. If you go back in the ancient record, you look at like people were generally like five foot tall. These people were probably like six foot plus. So if you're six foot plus, kidding, you're not Nephilim. No, <laughs> no, but. You just have the idea that there's some stature difference. There's a size difference. They're bigger people. They're powerful people. And so it's picking up here that um, the Nephilim were in the promised land. And then we over here to Joshua 11. At the end of where the expulsion, the getting rid of all the enemies of God, it's specifically noted, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hor um, Hebron, from Debir, from Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted these cities to destruction with their cities, uh, devoted them to destruction with their cities. There were none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, where there's some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, basically saying, yes, the war is over. And the war is over specifically because we got rid of all these Anakim 
for the sons of Anak, the, the sons of this bloodline of Nephilim in the Promised Land. So I just want to point out, if you look at Genesis 2, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 2nd, 2 and 3, all of these people that God says, I want you to devote them to destruction, they're all connected in one way or the other to Anak, the sons of Anak, who are all perceived to be this bloodline of the Nephilim in the Promised Land. Go to the next slide here. Then we see over here, remember Goliath, David and Goliath. David, or Goliath, comes from Gath. That's where the sons of Anak are. So there's a real sense in which we begin, we continue to see these Nephilim, these spiritual beings that have this bloodline of humans that continue to be kind of like the point, the, the, the point person of spiritual opposition to God's people through the Old Testament. Here we have Goliath himself identified with the, the being a, from the bloodline of the Nephilim. And then we, 2 Samuel 21, 22, there are four, uh, these four were descended from the giants, again, that size, stature thing of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The point that I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to do like Bible nerd this out, but just to say there's something that happens here in, Deut- in Genesis 6 that sets the stage for some of the difficult parts that we don't understand in the rest of the Old Testament. But if we understand that there's some spiritual perversion going on here in this passage, there's something happening where the humans and the demonic realm are intermarrying or there's some union between them that then God is after. It displeases him and he hates it. And he's trying to get rid of that to expel that from the world. We understand a little bit of these like, man, like God seems really bent out of shape on this stuff rest in the rest of the Old Testament. Well, it begins to make a little bit of some sense, right? If you want to ask more questions about that, fine. I'm just trying to give you a little bit of some like perspective of these weird passages begin to help us understand some difficult things. Now, I want to kind of draw us back to the passage. You guys cool? <laughs> like I know it's kind of like down the down the memory, you know, down the Bible knowledge train and all that stuff. Regardless of what perspective you take, I really don't care if you don't uh, don't agree with my perspective. That's fine. It, it, there's there's different perspectives held by legitimately smart people um, who know what they're talking about and disagree with everything I've just said. That's fine. I think if we look back at this passage here, let's note a few things about the nature of sin that's going on. When man had been uh, began to multiply in the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives that they chose. I think what you have here, can we go to, um, there's a list, a few slides over. I think if we look here, you have in this, this story the advance of evil, whoever these Nephilim or the sons of God are, they're taking what's not theirs. Right? There's clearly like they should not be do they should not be taking as their wives whoever these people are. And they and the Greek in this passage is it's it's very emphatic, like they're taking for themselves. It's not just kind of like, hey, like I know you don't need two tractors, let me take one of those tractors for me, sort of thing. It's no, I want more, give it to me. I want so it's taking more of what's not theirs. You notice it's it's interesting. This is kind of one of those first places in the Bible where it, there really hasn't been a reference to like how attractive people are one way or the other. And it's an emphasis in the passage on how attractive the women were that they took. And it's not to say like, oh, you shouldn't be pretty or that it doesn't matter if your spouse is pretty or something like that. But it's focusing in. They're saying, we're going to, we, we really care. Please don't talk. We, I just want to look at you. It's like just, the, it's kind of like gross. You're like, 
man, he's they're whatever they're doing, they're demeaning and objectifying these women in this story. And then you have the um, exploitation. There's some perspective that you can read this to read that it's not just one wife that they're taking per, they're taking multiple wives per. So there's an exploitation of, I really just want you to be able to make more babies sort of thing. Uh, verse five, we get down to verse five, you notice this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Whatever was happening in verses one through four, it leads to verse five, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thought of his heart was evil only continually, <laughs> which is a weird, like I, I keep stumbling over it. It was only evil continually. Basically, it was bad, 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 all the time bad. <laughs> it was really bad. You notice that all this undermines the good designs of God. We're going to get into this in the next section. And you'll notice here, we didn't read this verse, but just down, I, I, I put verse 6 up there. I meant to put verse 7. When the Lord executes his judgment, he says, I'm going to judge, I will cre- uh, that he will wipe from the face of the earth, not only man, but animals and creeping things. It's just a, it just undermines the fact that sin always has collateral damage. Like we think, oh, I'm just going to take this fruit from the tree and it's just going to affect me and Adam. <laughs> or I think it's just going to affect me. It's not going to affect anybody else. Let me just do this little thing. The cancer of sin is spiritual and relational and physical. It just gets so like you begin to kind of weep with this passage of like, God's good design in Genesis 1 through 2, man, it has really gotten bent out of shape. It's really gotten bad. And it's not just that people are bad. It's that there's, I would say from this passage, there are spiritual forces at play here that make it even worse. They accelerate it to make it even more sinful and evil. Let me make a few comments about how we understand this passage for us, and then we'll kind of move on to the second passage, or second part of this passage. I think what we see here, if you take my perspective, that there's, there's at least some type of spiritual being thing going on here. It doesn't have to be the full angelic thing or whatever, but some type of hybrid of those perspectives. I think ultimately we see a picture here that evil and sin and death in this world is complicated, it's messy, and there's more things going on than just sin and people and death. There is a larger playing field than just what we can see in the world around us. The spiritual world is real, it is dangerous, and it affects us in small and big ways. I don't want you to hear, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if your car broke down on the way to the church that that was demons that were like punching your engine, like, you know, causing problems for you. I think what we see here is there's probably some type of like systemic evil going on here in one way or the other, which they are ruling over man or ruling over people, I do think that there are small and major ways that we see this play out. So, I mean, again, I'm not preaching newspaper, but you look at the stuff going on with Russia and Ukraine right now, and you're like, look, I, obviously Putin's got something going on that's, you know, there's an expiration date a few years ago on, but you're like, how do you, how do you leverage an entire country and government to do evil, evil and wicked things? It's not just that he's a persuasive person. It would seem to me that there's probably some demonic realm in there. Where the ways in which we feel like we have been objectified or exploited, the ways in which we experience being oppressed, is not just that people are mean or bad, is that there is a spiritual realm to those things where things are dark 
and it, and that's a part of like when we're, we're trying to describe it to people and try to say like, can you? I can't believe that this happened, and you kind of lose words to describe how weird it is. I think we begin to see here in Genesis six that there is more going on than just what we see. There is a spiritual world at play. I'm not trying to scare anybody. But I'm just trying to say there is just it, it adds to the perspective of where sin and death comes from. I think about the folks here at our recovery center and the ways in which their addiction drives them to the point of just at the end of their ropes. And it's not just that they're they make bad decisions. I mean, we all make bad decisions, but there's a spiritual force and power, I think, that grabs on and hat and and leads our addictions forward, whatever, the, whether it's substance or pornography or anything else. I mean, it, it, you can list down anything down the line of, of addictions. Let me point this out, and then we're going to jump over to some of the rest of the passage. This is why I think we begin to see through the New Testament spiritual powers are real. Um, they affect our lives, and Jesus has got them under control. The reality is that stuff is above our pay grade. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into all the, like, how do we name it and all that stuff and get rid of the spiritual powers? Like, it really is. It's Jesus' pay grade. That's the stuff that Jesus not only comes to deal with our sin and guilt, but comes to deal with those things as well. So, for example, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to, to destroy the works of the devil. I, I think this begins to lead us down the path of how do we live in this world that's increasingly complicated and dark and difficult. It's Jesus came to deal with that stuff, guys. This is why we want to make it sure that it's not about how do we figure out what's the evil powers and who the Nephilim are and blah, blah, blah. The ultimate end of the day, spiritual powers exist. It's dark and it's real. Jesus specifically came to destroy the works of the devil. It's his pay grade. It's on his job description. It's not a, under Jacob, Pastor King's Cross Church, job description. I don't have listed destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> You may want me to have that, but I, I don't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Jesus is at the center of how we understand these things. So we're going to jump down here to the second half of this, this passage here. You guys tracking? Cool. Anybody freaked out yet? We're cool? Okay. We're through the weird stuff, okay? We're going to get to the rest of the passage. We want to see not only the cancerous spread of sin, but we want to see God's just and merciful heart here in verse 3 and then 5 to 8. Let me read this for us. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then down to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Regardless of what three, what of those three perspectives we talked about earlier, they ultimately try to capture why we get to verse 5 through 8, because the flood doesn't just come out of nowhere. God's doing something in response to something, and God's responding to the evil of the world, and he's saying, okay, I've got to get rid of this stuff. I've got to wipe the slate clean. I need to judge the sin that exists here. Now, 
I want to point out, as we kind of understand this passage, did you notice just the, the evocative language of what's going on here? God saw the wickedness, and it was great. Right? He regretted and grieved what he saw. It's like, I'm going to blot out, which is like a, a, a scriptural or a scribe sort of, where you, we use whiteout now when we make a mistake. We want to get rid of something blot out. It's kind of this anthropomorphic language of like what it's like to be a human or that he's sorry in his heart. Or you see in verse eight, the eyes of the Lord. So the perspective of what's going on here is it's drawing the God into the story in a way where he, he is being portrayed like a human with all these characters. Does God literally have eyes? No. Does God literally have, you know, an emotional center heart where he's grieved? That's not the way we understand the Lord. But it's language that helps us understand God is affected by what he's seeing. He's looking at this, the world, and he's saying, I love my creation. And you'll notice it's a bit of a, a flip of Genesis 1 where God saw and he loved and he delighted in the world. And here he sees the world and he's grieved his heart what he sees. So in terms of like the whole like what do we do with God regretting language, I think we just understand that in terms of God is being portrayed in human categories so that we see that he's a part, he's committed to the story. God doesn't actually like change his mind like he didn't know something and then he has to readjust. That's not the way we understand what's going on here. But what the point of that is to say God sees evil and sin in the world and it breaks his heart. He sees the way death affects us. And he's affected. He's not indifferent ruling over, hey, you guys have a good time down there. I'll send you a Hallmark card every once in a while. God, God's invested. And it breaks his heart to see it, which is very different than um, in the other stories of the flood in the, in the ancient world. Uh, for example, the Epic, Epic of Gilgamesh, if you were to read that, basically what happens is the, the gods are kind of like, man, all these people are making so much noise. We've got to get rid of them. And that's why they send the flood, because <laughs> people are making so much noise. They're the, they're the punk kids playing rock music on Friday nights. They're just kind of like, I want to get these kids out of my neighborhood. <laughs> that's why they send the flood. Whereas in Genesis, what we find here is, in fact, God is he's grieved by the presence of sin and how it affects us, how it destroys our lives, how it wrecks our marriages and friendships and jobs, how it breaks our minds and spirits and souls. God is affected by that. So you see here in verse 3, the 120 years, there's basically two kind of ideas on that. of Like God's going to limit the lifespan of mankind to be 120 years, or he's giving them 120 years um, until the flood comes. But, or it could be that the Lord is saying, you know what, I'm going to limit man's lifespan so that the evil and wickedness that he perpetrates on the earth is contained. Whatever it is of those kind of ideas, there's a mercy. God doesn't execute judgment immediately. It's like I, I love this world. I don't want it to be. Per- I don't want it to be continue to be hurt by sin and death and wickedness. And I love these people. I want to give them a chance to respond to me and to receive my care. So whatever it is, it's God's mercy here, and that's where we end with verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, God, God is responding to the advance of sin and wickedness and death in the world. 
but he is always eager to find people for mercy. And you'll know from the rest of the story, right? Noah goes on to grow, grow wine, uh, grow grapes so that he can make wine, and he gets drastically drunk and has like a huge, you know, family fall off from it. So Noah's not exactly like the most upstanding person either. But God is eager to find people for mercy, right? He, he is looking for people that are just even just slightly, slightly oriented to wanting more of God, to wanting God himself so that he himself can meet us with mercy. Mercy. See, this passage, amidst kind of describing all of the wickedness and grossness of sin, really, again, is continuing to invite us into the story of a God who creates all things, who loves us, and despite the advance of sin and death, is eager, eager to give us mercy eager to find people that want mercy, they need it. So just two final thoughts here, and then we'll, we'll close up. I think what this passage does for us is that for folks who have experienced or been the victim of sin, maybe you've been on the receiving end of somebody's sin, wickedness, evil, whatever, maybe you relate to some of these dynamics in chapter and verses one to four. I think we have a perspective for example, in Psalm 34, and you'll notice here in these words how it, it pulls on some of this language from Genesis 6. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, who cut to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, when we, we are the victims of sin, God's not indifferent. God sees it. He's distraught by it too. He's grieved by the way in which we're affected by sin in the world. He's acted and he is acting for you, to be for you in the midst of whatever you're experiencing or the victim of. It's... It's just fascinating to me how God goes out of his way to continually remind people, yes, God judges sin and we're all sinners, but he cares for those specifically who've been affected by sin. He wants you to know. He sees. He's grieved too. His part from this passage is rendered, is cut open. I think as well for us who begin to wonder, if God takes this strong a view of sin and death in the world, I, I am probably in the category of people who, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of Jacob's heart, and every intention of my heart was only evil continual. Uh, God, I'm just a messed up person. <laughs> I'm just continually, I mean, even in my best intentions, I'm just continually screwing up. First John, I think, offers us a pathway forward. We read from First John earlier, this, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. First John 4, in this the love of God was manifest among us. You notice, again, Genesis 6 is bringing God's heart down into the story of sin and destruction. Here John picks up on that idea. 
this and this the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved God but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins God's judgment will be executed but we'll see actually in the story of the flood we'll see how God's judgment is executed on himself and we see that ultimately in the cross of Christ where he receives the judgment that we deserve, that he stands in our place. That's what the word propitiation means. But it is so that God can dwell with us. He experiences our life alongside us. And he is eager to remove our sin from us so that we can continue to live in him and enjoy him and find life in him and to experience his mercy. See, all through this story, we... We were invited into this main idea that we laid out at the front, our only salvation from the grip of sin that I'm not sure where you find your place in this passage, but the only way out is through the main character of the book of Genesis, through God himself, that we would experience his mercy afresh. So pray with us. Pray with me as we close up. Jesus, as we have looked at this passage, I pray amidst all these dynamics of what we've been seeing that we would see here your heart that takes sin seriously, but your heart for us that is eager to find us and give us mercy where we are. So wherever we are this morning, Lord, amidst all the dynamics of our lives, I pray that you would help us to be people that are marked as those who have received mercy. Would you help us this morning to find comfort and help in your presence among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.